Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Uh, very good. Very good. Fantastic. Looking forward to uh, talking about supercomputers. Supercomputers, yeah. We've gone for a bit of a supercomputer special episode today because both the news and the tech spot are around that. We're looking at. Uh, a proposed new supercomputer just down the road from us at the Met Office in Exeter, uh, which, yeah, we'll get into. And then we're going to have a look at the top 10 or 11 fastest supercomputers in the world. And then finally, slightly off the supercomputer topic, we're joined by Steve Zamocchi, who is going to be chatting about all things, but we're looking at leadership and stuff like that. Yeah, very entertaining, that's for sure. I think so. Yeah. Um, um, we, we, we do get a little bit local sometimes with our podcast, but obviously the Met Office is one of those uh, great institutions, and it happen, just happens to be based in our hometown. So it does. Why not? And they, why not big it they, up? They have also they've been over the years a real sort of cutting edge institute. They'd often come up with these uh, fantastic things like supercomputers and ways of doing things. Um, that have never been done before, which is quite fun. Well, yeah, obviously, like just down the road. Yeah, and you can often be in a pub in Exeter, and suddenly you've got these experts talking about weather and computers behind you, and you're kind of going, hmm, I better not challenge them on any of these hmm? facts and figures <laughs> <laughs> or complain about the forecasting or whatever. Absolutely. I'm sure. Uh, so, yeah, this you uh, you turned up this news story, which is, um, it's a joint venture with Microsoft mm. um, to build what they say. Oh, yeah, the, I think the goal they said is to make the UK known as the home of the world's most powerful weather and climate supercomputer. Uh -huh. um, and, yeah, I guess it's not just predicting the weather, which is obviously the, one of the main functions, but also looking towards climate change and things like that. It will be able to help with... Uh, so yeah, exciting stuff. And there's a, yeah, a relationship there with with Microsoft that um, I was quite intrigued by as well, because obviously when we talk about cloud and things like this, um, Microsoft Azure and those type of things is 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 it's a comfortable area for us to talk about, or even Office mm. three six five. But thinking of Microsoft in the same league as um, maybe uh, some of the other software houses in the world when we talk about supercomputers is i i don't know it just doesn't doesn't feel like a natural fit but um um i'm sure there's a lot of benefit both ways in this relationship mm. well they do i mean obviously they have a hand in hardware but for sure i think they're more known for their software offerings mm. these days or at least more widely spread in their software offerings microsoft yeah um but yeah, they're obviously they're one of the old school tech companies. So if anyone can do it, I'm sure they can. I'm sure. I'm not doubting their ability. That's for sure. Um, mm. And this is the, yeah, this is backed by obviously the UK government. One point two billion pound government investment in this pioneering partnership um, with the Met Office and uh, Microsoft. Um, and yeah, it, it's it was announced on uh, World oh, Earth Day. Um, World Earth Day sounds a bit of a oxymoron, <laughs> but anyway, Earth Day on the 22nd of April, uh, really looking about how we can um, 
yeah, take in some more information, I guess, not just about the weather forecasting, but the impacts of climate change as well, because um, it talks about weather, but also climate. And uh, obviously the things are related, but not necessarily one of the same things. So they, they're looking to gather um, more data, generate and provide more accurate warnings of severe weather events. Um, and building up that kind of resilience and protection for population and business and infrastructure and all kinds of things. And obviously, mm. these things aren't local. Um, these are global issues, uh, especially when we talk about climate and the impact of climate. So you know, forecasting is always a tricky business, isn't it? Um, making predictions, uh, I think, you know, that there have been incremental improvements, as, as most things are, around how our weather forecasting abilities over the time. Um, but uh, having more precise and accurate models um, to help fight climate change, especially when many of the governments have already got these kind of zero net zero targets and things like this, is going to take so much more, not, not so information in the sense of kind of raw data and power, but as soon as you add uh, an extra dimension to any um, uh, analytics, you, it you know, it goes up more orders of magnitude more complicated. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've been looking to take in lots of information from different sources. Yeah, and I guess these these supercomputers, what they excel at is massive amounts of calculations again. So you're feeding in all of these different data points and then, like you said, building models for what could happen. Because, I mean, we've never, as anybody who knows who's planned a picnic or a barbecue, the weather has never been 100% accurate, but it's about getting as accurate as possible by saying, okay, well, we know if X, Y, Z happens, then potentially one, two, three will happen, but sort of out into orders of magnitude. So, yeah, these it's being able to plumb in millions and millions of points of data from all around the globe to build a potential prediction on what could happen climate-wise, weather-wise. Um, and then I guess the whole point is just refining that as the as the time goes on. The longer it works, the better it gets. Yeah, and that's that kind of anomaly correction as well, isn't it? You kind of, how do you train something where well, you've got to know when it hasn't got it right? For example and generally it's that that probability horizon isn't it the closer you are i mean i think we can all say pretty much you, you can look at the, the 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 weather forecast for tomorrow and generally you know it's pretty good these days and maybe two days out three days out but a week out starts to get less less predictable because of the um you know because the chaos in these in these predictions that can occur and become yeah. less and less probable the further out that horizon gets. But as these techniques advance, that horizon keeps pushing more and more um, longer, ultimately. Further and further, yeah. yeah. And I think... Oh, go on, sorry. The accuracy is about how long, how far that horizon is, I think. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention as well, it's... It's another thing, because we have spoken, I think, before in the podcast about sort of a talent bleed and a bit of a brain bleed from, um, uh, yeah, British universities to projects outside. I know we spoke about it with the space technology, but anything like this is obviously fantastic because it's, it's a really huge project that's going to run over multiple years, and it provides, yeah, a big economic 
boost, obviously, £1.2 billion is huge, but also gives the opportunity for really high-skilled jobs, um, not just as um, weather forecasters, but data scientists and all the rest of it to be involved in producing these models. Um, and yeah, it should it should give um, yeah a lot of people something to think about. Yeah, and like I said, the pull through of that, isn't it? It's not just about this one thing. Whenever there's these kind of grand challenges, um, there's lots of opportunities just to raise the bar over the whole industry. So more and more data scientists, more and more um, AI experts available to the market to mm. get involved with stuff uh, that isn't necessarily about weather forecasting or supercomputers, but that knowledge and capability is there. Um, and the interesting thing with these announcements, I think, is always that they're probably already working on these types of things and the supercomputer is probably already getting built and installed because the planning of these things takes so long. And here is saying it'll be up and running in summer 2022. So, yeah, you'd imagine this is kind of news after the event a little bit, but um, um, it's always good to see. It certainly is. Um, well... On that note, perhaps we should look at some examples of other supercomputers that are operating right now. Um, I think there's a few big names that might come up more than once through the list. Uh, but yeah, should we take a rundown? Top 11, I think we were planning on. Well, should we do some, um, uh, just some definitions first, Alex? What do you think? Okay. Hit me um, with the definitions. Hit me with some <laughs> tech for the tech spot. For the tech for the tech spot. So, yeah, so not an area of our, our uh, knowledge at all. But once again, um, we're looking up these kind of terminologies that come up with this type of thing. And flops is definitely a word that comes up more than once. Uh, it and it, it's one way of measuring the performance of as any computer, really, or in this case, being applied to the supercomputer. So floating point operations per second is the uh, flop, mm -hmm. or your flops. Um, I don't know where the S comes from. Oh, we are seconds. <laughs> per second, yeah. Um, and uh, that is used around something called the um, LIMPAC benchmark, um, which is a a way of being able to standardize those kind of benchmarking of anything really uh, in the computer world because it's always quite one of those quite tricky things isn't it you, when i remember you know starting up a computer it's like, oh how quickly does it boot up or something like this and you know you get you get an extra bit of memory or a faster processor and you plug it in and you kind of go you know, you're expecting this to run five times faster or something like that but you have no idea about all those background processes that are happening and you can't really gauge unless you have a proper benchmark for which to manage it with really um, yeah. and that's really where this um limpact benchmark came out uh first appeared in once again 1979 so early on um in the computer history um mm -hmm. and then moving through things like parallel computing processes um and number of cores now so obviously a chip itself is made up of many cores um and really uh I guess with the invention of the high performance computing, uh, um, 1991 type of area, then mm. this became more of a uh, more of an art form in a way about how do you make sure um, that, that you're being able to benchmark like with like, and also not just about CPUs, um, 
you've got different types of processes these days which make a lot of difference especially when you're talking about managing of graphics as well as processing and graphics processes are often used for ai because they just happen to be very efficient so your gpus are very efficient at handling ai as well as um as well as images and all that type of thing so yeah mm. it, 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 it's become far more specialized and far more um uh, precise around those types of measurements and with any, everything the more detail you want to get and the more the answer become you want to drill down and find the answer the more complicated your definitions of what a, a benchmark is or how well it performs because it really depends on your viewpoint really um, and what application you're using that computer for so as we said here with the weather forecasting um you know require different they strain the computers in different ways so what suit yeah. one computer or, or supercomputer might not necessarily be suitable for another you could kind of take the analogy of a supercar can you that handling or performance or out and out acceleration they're all different measures of what a supercar is and i think the equivalent is for a supercomputer but anyway yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like you say, I mean, it, it for us, the mere mortals, you buy a computer or build a computer yourself, it's going to be a very general use kind of thing. And what mm. I might use it for would be different to what you might use it for, etc. But they roughly work for about everything. But these supercomputers are, they're really from the ground up with a purpose, aren't they? Mm. Like exactly. you say, if, when they get to the end of, or if the, if slash when, this new Met Office computer gets to the end of its life, you can't just pop it on Gumtree and use it for your other supercomputing needs. It's more of a, yeah, it's got a specific purpose and probably a specific lifetime. And, yeah, you see a lot of these are based in research centres, etc., aren't they? Some are mm -hmm. dedicated to AI and cloud infrastructure and um, you know, weather forecasting or all kinds of uh, management. Uh, we'll come across some of those as we bouncing as we go rundown so yeah yeah um all right well let me throw number 11 at you which is pangea 3 uh this is a french offering vendor is ibm uh, and they're clocking in at 17.8 petaflops now i think petaflops peta i always forget the, the exact numbers but it goes megabytes uh gigabytes terabytes petabytes is the one above that That's so correct. yeah 17 times more than a thousand times more than any of us have in our computer basically <laughs> which is pretty big and that's coming in at number 11 that's number 11 france we included that because you know a bit of variation in the location really wasn't it so yeah um, you yeah. want to see these all around the world yeah uh, so yeah roughly um this one is AI optimized, high performance architecture, all the rest of it. Uh, it's uh, the various applications are mainly around three different fields, exploration and development of seismic imaging, development and production models and asset valuation and selectivity. So yeah, it's a bit of more of a multi-use thing, but still with very specific goals in mind. And from IBM, which I think will pop out more than once in our uh, rundown. 
It will indeed. In fact, we're on to number 10, another IBM machine. This one is up slightly higher, 18.2 petaflops, with a whopping 288,288 cores. Um, I recently just purchased a, a new processor with six cores, so slightly more than that. Um, and this one, yeah, IBM again. This one's based in the United States, uh, and it looks like... Yeah, it's a decent size. It is exactly one-sixth of the size of its larger brother. And, yeah, not a huge amount of details on this one on what it's for. I don't know if you've been able to look anything out. No, but it's um, stored next to the uh, Sierra, Sierra. <laughs> which is the number two fastest computer. So they've got two supercomputers next door to each other. Um you, once again, it's like you, you'd have thought you could just connect them up and get a super duper computer, but apparently not. Apparently not. No. Um, okay, so number nine, we've got the Super Muck NG at 19.4 teraflops, petaflops, excuse me. Uh, and this isn't an IBM, it's a Lenovo. Mm. And um, yeah, it's connected to powerful visualization systems that contain a large 4K stereoscopic power wall and a five-sided CAVE artificial virtual reality environment. Um, yeah, so this is European scientists are using it uh, for many areas, including genome analysis, fluid dynamics, quantum chromodynamics. So that sounds quantum-y and timey. Life sciences, medicine, astrophysics. So yeah, very, uh, very useful within the sciences. I yeah. imagine, yeah, lots of different projects going on there at once. Yeah, some and really that's interesting well. applications there, isn't there? Really around the human genomics, the um, the fluid dynamics is something that we do a lot within the aerospace industry because basically that's how you know gas turbine works. So if you're looking at those kind of efficiencies driving through a turbine you want to be able to simulate those fluid dynamics for the latest um um tur gas turbine engines and things like that so they've got lots of different real i would say pretty practical uses for that kind of technology absolutely um yeah number eight is the ai bridging cloud infrastructure uh this is japan fujitsu it's for the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology. So that's that's close to our sort of area. Mm. Um, we like the industrial side of things. Mm. Uh, and Fujitsu Limited claims that the supercomputer can achieve 20 times the thermal density of conventional data centers and a cooling capacity of 70 kilowatts rack by using hot water and air cooling. So that's another one of these things, isn't it? That these machines use massive amounts of energy and produce massive amounts of heat. So mm. obviously each one, they're an engineering marvel just to keep them running because, uh, yeah, I mean, your home computer, if anyone sat with a laptop on their lap, computers get hot quickly. <laughs> so these things get very hot. Yeah, and this looks like an amazing machine, actually. It looks very different from the other ones, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and obviously trying out different technologies, but the, the world's first scalable open AI computing infrastructure. There's an interesting concept in itself, isn't it, about having open AI supercomputers um, and maybe, uh, yeah, using a lot of uh, citizen science capabilities, who knows, but um, 
So it sounds like this is quite an innovative um, supercomputer in itself. For sure. I mean, it's listed as 19.8 petaflops, but apparently at peak performance, it can go up to 32.577 petaflops, mm. which is, yeah, I, I wonder if we're going to get confused by the word petaflops at some point, but it's, for the time being, very impressive. Well, I think that's that scalability, isn't it? It sounds it's like um, it's got a it's got a sports mode, hasn't it? By the sounds of it, clearly, yeah. <laughs> uh, number seven on the list: twenty-one point two petaflops. Uh, vendor is Cray, who I don't, I don't, they're not a company I've heard of. Cray. Oh, aren't they? I mean, Cray Computer. That was sort of, that's what I thought a supercomputer was when I grew up. It was always yeah. I I have that. The word Cray and supercomputers are synonymous in my mind. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's not one you hear of, obviously, in everyday computing, but it's definitely something that's been around for a while. And um, um, probably if we dig a little bit deeper, there's a long history of Cray very focused in this specific area. We'll have to do a Cray special at some point. Yeah. And this one's uh, obviously interesting from a point of view of... Um, its uses um, to ensure it's all around nuclear weapons simulation um, mm -hmm. and ensuring that the nuclear stockpile is safe, secure, and effective. So yeah, this... um, it's a real uh, yeah, computer that is um, hopefully keeping us safe. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, it's at Los Alamos, which I know is synonymous with those sort of things. So, yeah. Los Alamos, Exciting yeah, stuff. that's the, the home of uh, nuclear weapons for the USA. So... Um, very important stuff there. Yeah. Uh, number six on the list, we have Piz Daint. Uh, this is a Swiss uh, supercomputer, Cray again, 21.2 uh, petaflops. And this one uh, is named after Mountain Piz. I say Piz Daint. I'm sure it's much better pronounced if you're Swiss. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the idea behind this is... Uh, well, it says, in addition to its daily task, it can handle data analysis of some of the world's most data-intensive projects, such as data collected from experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. So again, like we were talking about with the Met Office's computer, it's, it's massive amounts of data, massive amounts of calculations, which obviously things like the Large Hadron Collider produce, just vast quantities of data that need to be crunched in an efficient way. Yeah, I know you, you imagine those um, particle collisions are happening very quickly. So not mm. only a very large amount of data, but um, um, really quick, as in <laughs> yeah, sample times that uh, would be quite eye-watering. Um, we often band around this phrase, sort of real time. And obviously, you know, that's a very debatable point because you know, what is real time is... Uh, is is almost in the world of um, science fiction in a way, but uh, in in these cases, sometimes people talk well sub second, sub seconds real time, and once again you talk about milliseconds, microseconds, um, nanoseconds, or whatever it is is that kind of thing, isn't it? That when when they're looking at that kind of um, data intensity, it's really around a very short period of time, a lot of data to be mm. collected and analysed. Yeah. Uh, number five on the list, Frontera, 23.5 petaflops. Um, this is another US-based one, Dell EMC, uh, producing it. And Frontera 
features two computing subsystems. The first one focuses on double precision performance, while the second one focuses on single precision stream memory computing, which is a lot of words. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it looks like it opens up new possibilities in engineering by providing extensive computational resources. So yeah, another science-based um, supercomputer for really creating um, theoretical models, I assume, again. Mm -hmm. And interesting from Dell, you know, one, yeah. once again, a, a company that we would more as assess with um, home computing capabilities. Um, but uh, obviously, it's a bit like uh, being back to the Formula One analogy. You've got your, you've got your Mercedes on the road, and you've got your Mercedes in the um, in the Formula One world or whatever. Let's see. I guess it's they they use it to push the boundaries of their computing knowledge and to promote their capabilities. One hundred. Well, yeah. I was going to ask: Is do you think, uh, from your perspective, are some of these supercomputers? I mean, obviously, they all have a goal in mind from the science side. But as far as the vendors go, is it sort of, yeah, proof of concept, a bit of a vanity thing? You want to be involved showing that you can produce these things? I think there's definitely a bit of status there, isn't there? So it's mm. a bit like um, you've got to be in the space race, isn't it? Or something like this. So the, the next two are, prime, I think, prime examples of a, a superpower feeling like they've got to get into the supercomputing capability because if they're not, they're not they can't be considered to be a superpower um, yeah and yeah so the next two are in that space obviously they're more uh, national not national but as we saw with the uh, the one at the met office there's a there's a close link between the investment governments make um and the status of them uh, or a bit like with airports isn't it airports aren't just about making planes fly going from a to b they are an architectural wonder that welcomes people to your country and makes them feel that you're more advanced or whatever it is. And therefore, lots of the you know best architects in the world get involved with airports. And I think there's, mm. there's all those kind of synergies with these types of things that how big is my supercomputer? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that leads nicely into number four, the Tianhe 2A. 61.4 petaflops, which is quite a jump. Yeah. Um, and this is, yeah, it's a national supercomputing center in uh, Guangzhou, China. And, yeah, like you say, this is a state-run supercomputing effort. Um, and they, uh, yeah, China spent about 2.4 billion yuan, which is around $400 million dollars. Uh, it's now mostly used in simulations, analysis, and government security applications. So, yeah, we know China as a state has, uh, yeah, a lot of perhaps state surveillance, things like that going on. You'd need a large supercomputer to handle those sort of operations. That's correct, yeah. So, yeah, probably we're not going to get too much information on these, but computers and how they're used, but we know there's lots of... Um facial recognition used and uh, those mm -hmm. kind of things. Um, so you're going to need the computing power to achieve them. Whether they achieve it in the, in the way is is a, is a different debate. But We'll have to see their next white paper to see if it's achieving. Uh, yeah, and the next one, Sunway uh, Taihu Light, which is the National Supercomputing Center in Wuxi, China. And that's 93 petaflops. 
uh, getting into crazy numbers here. So, yeah, the, <laughs> it's going up and up, isn't it? The it really is. Aren't even small now, I guess. You would think, yeah, the top ten would be a bit of a band, but no, it's there is gaps between them. Yeah, and, and that's almost like the highest building thing, isn't it? To the the you know mile high building, how long does it take you to get there? Well, you can't just go a little bit above it; you got to go substantially above it, haven't you? Yeah. Well, not only do you have to beat the person before you, you've got to make sure the person after you has a hard time beating you. Or ones that are in flight that you may know about. You know, there's all kinds of uh, <laughs> bartering going on there. Uh, yeah. So this one, uh, in addition to life sciences, pharmaceutical research, Taihu Light has been used to simulate the universe with 10 trillion digital particles, um, which is, yeah, I think... This is probably where supercomputing came onto my radar many years ago, is the idea of trying to simulate the universe. And I know it's sort of, we got very good quite early on with doing a very small portion of the universe. You know, we can really accurately produce a centimeter, perhaps. But then, yeah, building out those into more um, realistic examples of the universe, it's it requires massive computing, which is, here we go. That's what yep. they do. Sounds fun. Mm. Uh, so number two, we mentioned it earlier, Sierra, uh, 94.6 petaflops, just next door to uh, the uh, an earlier one, number 10, I think we mentioned, in the Lawrence Livermore, Livermore National Library. Um, Sierra offers up to six times the sustained performance and seven times the workload of its predecessor, Sequoia. Uh, it combines two types of processor chips, and Sierra is specifically designed for assessing the performance of nuclear weapon systems. So again, it's coming back to that um, nuclear weapon is they are they are terrifying engineering marvels that obviously require a lot of modeling because they're not something you want to test too often. No, well. I don't think you're allowed to test them these days, but um, in the equivalence of, yeah. And also yeah. how they degrade over time. You know, they're very uh, volatile things, ultimately, with the amount of radiation. Is that the um, the uh, weapons themselves don't last great. Yep. Yeah. So it says, yeah, it's used for predictive applications in stockpile stewardship. So, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly that. It's not so much, not necessarily entirely looking at how the weapon performs, but... How could you possibly store something that is, it's a really eating itself, aren't they, those things? <laughs> They're radioactive, that's for sure. Yeah. And that brings us to number one, IBM back on the board, uh, 148.6 petaflops. And this is in the Oak Ridge National Library in the United States. And this is Summit. So this is up to now the fastest, biggest most powerful supercomputer in the world um, that can produce 200 petaflops at its peak. Uh, and it says here, this is the equivalent to 200 quadrillion floating point operations per second. That's a lot of power. It is. Not as much as in your brain, though. That's the thing. <laughs> We've never quite caught up to nature, have we? But we're getting there. We, we spoke with Steve Ferber, who's... Um, vehemently trying to reach that goal. I think he said he's got up to a mouse brain so far, which yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
But that always puts it in perspective, isn't it? It's like, you know, we have the most powerful computer in our heads. Um, we do. And uh, always comes back to the good old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for me. Um, whenever we talk about supercomputers and brains and this type of thing, you know, I have the brain the size of a planet. and uh, Brain the size of a planet. <laughs> in this um, case, probably bigger. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. So, yeah, Summit is 46,000 plus or 4,600 4, plus servers um, that are about the size of two basketball courts. They've got more than 9,200 IBM Power9 processors and almost 30,000 NVIDIA Tesla V100 GPUs. So, this is coming back to what you mentioned before. Obviously, both of those things, a CPU and a GPU, provides power and computational ability in different ways. So mm -hmm. it's it's building an infrastructure where they can talk to each other and produce, um, yeah, a result together. I mean, that's staggering amounts there. I mean, that's almost that's 35,000 individual things going into this, yeah, combined unit that uses enough power to, to run 8,100 homes. Yeah. And all used, once again, in the, there's some interesting case studies here, isn't it? So physics, I mean, even the nuclear stuff is really kind of physics. And this is on the genomic data as well. So um, back to the, the, the whether it's human genome projects or whatever it is, the mapping out of life and the universe yeah. and everything around them. Um, so, yeah, genomic data. And again, you just come back to, we, we put all of this effort into technology and it's the amount of, I mean, the size of these things to try and figure out something like genome, which we all have in us, that data that's in every cell of our body is incredibly vast. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're, we're really struggling to catch up to try and figure out what nature does, but they're doing it. That's it. That's what science is about, isn't it? Study of nature and the understanding of it. It is indeed. So yeah, that's the top 11 supercomputers. Um, fascinating stuff. And, you know, I, I can guarantee as soon as we hit publish on this episode, a new announcement, there'll be a number one somewhere else they've been hiding under a mountain. But, uh, yeah, if that's the case, we'll come back and cover it. Well, we're, we're going to work out what's beyond PETA, really, because soon they're going to be in the, you know, there are 150 PETA flops or 200 PETA flops. It's not going to be long before we're going to have to replace the word PETA. Absolutely. Yeah. I refuse to learn it until they do it, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think it's uh, it's probably time we jumped into our conversation with Steve Zamoki. And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Steve Zamoki, uh, Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing for, I'm definitely going to mispronounce this, Fian Zilstra. Very good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. And uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Great to be on. Thanks for the invite and looking forward to a, uh, a great discussion over the next 30 minutes. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. So if you'd like to give us a bit of your background, that'd be fantastic. How you, uh, how you got to where you are. You bet. Thanks, Alex. Um, so, you know, I started my career, um, I, I went to school for um, computer technology. So think computer science. Um, I also have a, a background in technical communications. And, uh, you know, my first real job out of college, I wrote um, three 800 page 
manuals, software manuals on how to program PLCs. And I wow. quickly, I quickly decided after that, that's not what I'm going to do the rest of my life. <laughs> Understandable. Was that was that your own desire to write all of that, Steve, or was that something that was uh, forced upon you <laughs> in between your ranks? Or it, it, you know, I think when people start their careers, they they have aspirations and goals to go after one thing, and and life is a journey, and it takes you down different roads, right? So I, I was part of a software company that. Uh, that's that that was my job that was my role to do that and uh, uh when i went to university you know i thought that was going to be what i wanted my career to be was have a degree in in technical communications and and pursue that part of it because um it's it, at, during that age and even today how to use things how to operate how to apply software towards applications you know i was you're know, super passionate about it. so um you know that's where my career started and uh that uh, software company kind of led into um, a, a pretty big growth um, company. I was, you know, like the 16th employee of that company. We ramped it up to about um, 160 employees. And then a small company by the name of Rockwell Automation bought our company and we became a division of Rockwell called Rockwell Software. And that was really the, the start of my career. And then, uh, after that, I had an entrepreneurial spirit and I joined a, another software company that did factory information systems. And um, and that was before IoT and Industry 4.0 became hip, even though there's a lot of similarities between uh, those things of the past. And um, I was there for about four years at uh, a company called Active Plant Corporation. And then GE recruited me out of that. And then I led... Uh, uh, a pretty pretty diverse team across multiple continents as the commercial leader for GE Fanuc. So I was involved in PLCs, involved in uh, um, a whole bunch of um, software platforms, including you know level three systems, ME, MES systems, all the way down to SCADA level systems. I ran a business for GE and then um, was recruited out to um, working outside of the uh, the software industry for a bit. And I, I worked in a uh, solar company and then that led me back into the industry. And I was recruited out of that uh, company because of uh, what was going on in the solar industry at the time. And then I was part of JMP Solutions for about six years. And uh, we ramped that company from about um, 13 million to about 62 million inside of four and a half years. So that was kind of a neat little run. And uh, I joined FZ about a year ago past uh, during the uh, COVID lockdown that was happening. So, uh, Alex, we share a kindred past and starting a we career do. during a pandemic. So <laughs> somehow we got lucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Definitely some similarities there. As you were, as you were listening now, Steve, I was thinking, Crumbs, you're almost almost uh, describing my career, but it, <laughs> from a European standpoint. So yeah, we I was a part of a system integrator house in the UK doing PLC programming, and then Siemens come and board us. So not Rockwell, but <laughs> the, yeah. the other the other, other clients in the industry. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, that really led me into the kind of information systems and things like this, which I always found, I don't know if this is something that rings true with you, but going from something that's controlling some real machinery and devices and 
where bits and bytes within a program actually have a physical manifestation. Um, and, and that can be as big as, you know, controlling a gas turbine and things like this or whole factories or whatever. Um, to go into information systems, I, I had this kind of feeling. It's like, what's the point in that? We're moving data around. That's not like moving robots or machinery around. <laughs> and it took me a while to get over that kind of fact that actually, yeah, data is quite important as well, not just that kind of physical manifestation. I don't know if that's something you ever felt going from one one domain to the other. Yeah, it is a jump, and uh, but it's a, it, it's a contiguous jump in terms of, you know, you're controlling and sending bits of information to do the control. And then there's information, especially when you think about uh, like bi-directional information with ERP systems and, and, and the like, that the information flow is just as important and just as critical as, as controlling this stuff on the plant floor, for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I still get a bit of a buzz though, even thinking back now to when you when you actually see that physical machine move and know which line of code is actually causing that to happen. <laughs> so. you, 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 you know, you, you bring back a memory for me, and that is the first time you ever do a SCADA screen and you press a button and something turns on or off. You're like, "Wow, that's cool!" Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the future, and it's not a physical button; it's just a screen. Right. Yeah, and, and now we all live in the world where we have programmable thermostats that are controlled by our iPhone or Droid, and you know we can increment or decrement our, our heating of our houses and other home automation, right? So it's mm. commonplace for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially it's so easy now. I've got the same, got those kind of remote heating system and things like that. I was like, oh, I was away, away at the weekend. I thought I better turn my heating off. I can do this while walking along in a field. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which is an interesting concept. So, and um, just looking at that kind of progression in career, what what made what what about you made you move in that particular direction? As in, more in the business side of things, what 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 changed that from a technical role into more of a uh, yeah, maybe more commercial, maybe yeah, whatever you call that kind of technical sales consultant. Yeah, uh, you know, you know, it's interesting because um, I I think early on in, in careers, people fight. And, and you have to pick a track at some point in life. Do you want to continue down a, a a technical track, or do you move more towards a business and a a business minded track? And, and and there's no right or wrong answer for anybody. And you know, as you coach and you lead people, it, it's just an evolution and progression. You know, at one point, you know, we had to be Microsoft certified and Visual Basic certified way back in the day, and I'm completely dating myself for sure. But at one point, you start to understand, I think, career-wise, that the languages of, of business, you need business acumen. And I just mm -hmm. got inspired around learning business acumen, learning a P&L, learning you know, the financials of how a business is run. Um, because all my life, I, early in my career, I went down the road of everything was technical, right? And it reminds me of the old story of, uh, you know, if the only uh, tool in your tool belt is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right, so, you know everything's a good one. Starts, you know everything starts off with, "Hey, it's technical, it's technical." Well, the, the people that sign purchase orders don't want to hear about the technical bits and bytes of things. They want to yeah. know what the business benefits is are. And I, I, I think for me, that was an aha moment where, wait a minute, if I'm going to be talking to business leaders 
to get projects approved, I need to understand their language better and the international language of a P&L statement, a return on investment and hurdle rates and a return on investment, those types of things kind of come into play. So I, I, I think that was, you, you know, Martin, I would love to say I was smart enough to say I planned it that way. Clearly, that was not the case. <laughs> I mean, planning a career is almost an impossible thing, potentially. <laughs> it's a journey, right? Yeah, for sure. I think you, you touched on it briefly there, but you mentioned the role of leadership in uh, these sort of things. How, does it, how do you feel about that? What's the, the effect of good leadership on uh, yeah, great, progress? Yeah, great point. And I think um, as we all get older, you, you know, we... we um, we, we we venture down this road of we remember great leaders that we had and we probably also remember leaders that weren't as great as other leaders that we have had right and and i really um when i was at uh, general electric i got exposed to their executive career paths at at crotonville and their management um, classes and and they really did a, a phenomenal job of depicting and educating you know team members on the difference between management and leadership styles and and what appeals to people around really good leaders so you think about humility you think about integrity and and the like of other attributes of leadership and i think in the world that we're going into where people and building world-class teams is so incredibly important and attracting talent is so incredibly important i think leadership is one of those levers that you have to have really solid leadership within companies to attract world-class talent that you can build a scalable enterprise around. And so to me, leadership, Alex, is that foundation that um, many, many people strive for. They wanna know that the leadership team is world-class. They wanna know that there's a backbone, backbone of integrity that's in the company and they want to know, Hey, are we going to have some fun here? And what are we going to do to help change the world? And I mm. think that's a, that's, I think leadership is one of those foundational blocks. That's so important. Make, does that make sense guys? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was interesting as well. You're talking about, we are heading into what feels like a new world because of what's happened over the last 12 months. Um, and even though it's, it's felt very shut down, since 2020 it feels like it might be even more open moving forward so uh yeah you're right being able to signify that to now a global workforce is super important that get to be able to yeah sort of prove that out before people even get into um new positions yeah and you know i also think you know around leadership um you know inclusiveness diversity how you can bring in like-minded people from around the world and bring them together to solve difficult things. I think diversity and inclusiveness is a big, big part of the cultures that world-class companies are going to be building. And I think that's that just other avenues of leadership styles of how they can be inclusive um, in driving the right teams and the right behaviors is critically important going forward for sure.
Yeah, and I, and I really there's a, there's a great video on YouTube. You know, one of these things that kind of captured to me the idea of leadership. And there, there's a guy at a festival dancing in the field. I don't know if you've seen it, Steve. But I know I, it. You know, all of these kids are chilling out on this bank under the sun. You know, really enjoying being a being a uh, you know in university or whatever it is. And one of the guys just gets up and starts dancing alone. And uh, suddenly, you know, another person comes dancing with them. So no longer is the leader the most important thing. It's the fact that someone else has followed them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just a person dancing in the field on your own. You know? <laughs> Which I is great, of course. Yeah. Inspiration is is a big part of it, for sure. Yeah. And then you get that kind of following effect. And that's what you're kind of talking about, about bringing in great talent. Because, you know, I think one of the things you touched on there about humility and leadership is the fact that you, you soon know you don't know it all. You soon know that you cannot do everything by yourself. And if you think you can do everything by yourself, you're already failing because... Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think in, in everybody's career and their, their journey, hopefully, they the, the sooner you can figure out what you just said, Martin, the, the better off you're going to be in, in helping your teams grow, right? Yeah. Because nobody knows it all and and nobody's ever going to know it all and the more you can approach things with hey i'm here to learn with the team the better off you're going to be the more you're going to help inspire the 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 team to grow and grow together right yeah yeah and that's that's very much the key i think is that um you become in my mind or my experience you become less of an expert about anything but you if anything you become an expert more about human nature yeah. um, understanding people a bit more um trying to bring them on the journey with you and less and less about the technology behind it and uh, it, you know it, as as we said our journeys have followed a similar path from understanding how to program a plc all the way to going actually what's important is the people is it is <laughs> it is about the people and, and you think about you know the evolution of team development and you know people go through this the 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 stages of team development from storming, forming, and then finally to performing. You, you know, I think today's leaders, you need to, you know, take that, that those stages and go from how do I not wait for 24 months to build that world-class performing team? How do you get that down to 12 months and to go through those stages inside of 12 months of building that team? And it becomes trust and humility are going to be those drivers to help optimize your teams to greater performance, right? So, yeah, I know I always create an analogy around soccer or football, as we call it. Uh, you know, it's like, you, you know, you're ahead, you, you know, I'm always kind of, wow, this is how soccer teams actually function. You know, you really are trying to bring all of these elements together, all of the egos, all of the personalities. And the, and it is more of a it's, a, it's a, it's a psychological thing about bringing people and wanting people to work for you and getting the most out of them and all these type of things, but not in a, yeah, not in an arrogant. It's like I personally, I like to try and create a thing of enjoyment. You know, <laughs> trying to enjoy what we do is kind of what really drives what I try and do. And then part of the podcast with Alex and things like this is we enjoy doing it. So why not? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it, I think it's great. And I think you know, sitting down with people and understanding, hey, what are their professional goals and objectives, and then linking that up with the personal goals and objectives because in the world that we're evolving to 
this I idea of separation of church and state or business from personal, everything is just melding together, right? In the world that we live in. And so how do how does how do leaders empower their teams to understand, you know, the personal and professional drivers because that stuff becomes integrated, right? It, you know, today's day and age, you get text messages from work at all hours of the day on a Saturday or a Friday night or what have you, and you're going to take two seconds and respond, right? Well, that's the integration of of work and life, and exactly. and that stuff just, I think, as leaders, we we have to understand that stuff and be cognizant that we're here to empower and support our team, right? And that Alex is in mm. his day off today. Look at it. That's how we can be. Yeah, it is indeed. <laughs> it is his day off. <laughs> Proving the concept. Um, I think, yeah, what's important, uh, something important you touched on there, it's, it's the idea of empowering and enabling. Uh, and I think going back to an earlier point, you, you said we all know those good leaders we've had and those bad leaders we've had. And I think one one fact that has rung true for me in every uh, position I've worked in is a good leader is somebody who enables you. And that's not about micromanaging or, you know, taking every element of the day and et cetera, et cetera. It's about understanding that you've built this team and then enabling them to do the work. I think that's probably something that I th a lot of leaders struggle to stand off from because it feels like, you know, maybe you're losing a bit of control. But if, if you've done the work and built the team, then it's about letting them go to do what they do best, I think. I, I think, Alex, you are spot on. I mean, great leaders give power away to enable and empower their teams, right? So the more you can give and disseminate power, which I, I think is almost a, an old cliche, um, mm -hmm. it, it's really empowering people and setting up the the high wide walls for them to run free, and and I think through discipline and cadence and experience, you can empower your teams to run fast, to, to be creative, to be innovative, because those things really help drive. Uh, I'm going to say velocity, business velocity for for teams to succeed, and I think that's what we want. I think so. Couldn't agree more. So what's what's next? Um, we did, what's next for you, Steve? And the, uh, you know, you've joined this company relatively recently, but what's next on your agenda? Global domination. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that, hey. Yeah, we used, we used to laugh at you, you know when I was part of public companies, you could never use those words, global domination, right? So, um, you know, career-wise, you know, we're building up a team here at FC, and uh, um, we have um, really a lot of growth. Uh, that we plan and are planning in the end user markets around uh, especially driving deeper relationships with uh, national accounts. So we're building out a, a team of sales professionals and marketing professionals, and uh, we're going to continue to do that. Um, you know, for me personally, I'm going to continue to evolve my career. I'm sitting on more advisory councils and helping out younger folks in, in businesses and I get a, a, a big amount of satisfaction on growing teams and team members and uh, helping them get to new levels. So for me, that's just kind of personal rewarding uh, for me, Martin. Perfect. Anything on the technology side that you find of interest at the moment? Always. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have uh, one of my employees that works for me. He is um, he's a, a blockchain expert. 
I, I, yeah, as much as we can be experts in the world of blockchain, right? I'm really, um, I'm fascinated by the technology around blockchain because when you think about irrefutable databases and what that can mean from a health regulatory perspective in, in the United States, we have HIPAA laws. So you think about people's background of their medical, um, everything that's contained in their medical history. You think about supply chain of um, genealogy and tracking of products across supply chain. And I think how the evolution of databases is going to move and migrate towards things like blockchain technology. I'm really curious and, and just inspired by how that is changing and is going to change the world. And crypto is a part of that, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the the blockchain technology itself and how that is uh is uh going to grow and be a part of our lives going forward yeah so underlining that is that kind of distributed ledger type of approach mm -hmm. isn't it which is really coming back to the human element of trust it is. absolutely so trusted network that allows you to yeah forget about the kind of commercial maybe you know maybe right. there's already once that commercial stuff's defined then you, you should be able to work more more seamlessly um yeah, yeah i'd be interested to see how it develops because obviously there's there's some there's some big issues to overcome there around the uh For sure. the data mining aspect of it and things like this but um, absolutely we <laughs> sure are absolutely <laughs> But that would be, uh, we haven't really touched on blockchain too much, have we, Alex, when we've been discussing? We talked about it from a, um, uh, yeah, a, we did a, a data mining point of view, but not the underlining technologies of it. No, and we had a look at NFTs as well, which is obviously tied in with blockchains. Uh, and we, I think, quickly discovered that neither of us knew a huge amount about it, but it was fun to talk about anyway. <laughs> That's what we spend our life doing, talking about that. Except we become generalists. It's not... <laughs> and by the way, if you're looking for somebody who's an NFT expert, that's not me. So, like, this Well, we'll have to get you on our next NFT episode then. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. Uh, I think we're about hitting our, our time limit here, but it's been... Great to talk to you, Steve, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back for another chat. Um, as always, we've touched on many things that I think we could do a full episode on, so we'll just have to do a part two soon. There we go. It'd be my pleasure. And uh, again, on, uh, on behalf of uh, myself and uh, my company, FC, thanks for the opportunity to uh, chat with you guys. Really uh, appreciate your time and uh, love to chat anytime. Fantastic. Thank thanks very much. That's it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alex. I think we really excelled ourselves this week talking about stuff we have no idea about. Oh, so we witted on. We, we managed it. We got through there, and we uh, we talked about our flops and our petters, and we got to the end. Just about. Uh, as always, I've got a quote to finish off. I thought as we were doing computers, I would go with Ada Lovelace, uh, best known for her work on Charles Babbage's, um, yeah, the analytical engine, his proposed mechanical general purpose computer. Um, she had some lovely quotes, both that I picked this one. Your best and wisest refuge from all troubles is in your science. Nice. Nice, sir. Yeah, that's really good. I've never heard that before, and uh, yeah.
It's definitely a refuge. Love place. refuge of the mind, isn't it? Absolutely. So to think about that, you know, when you think about the what science is about is, you know, trying to establish the truth or get better, closer to the truth. Maybe we never get there, but at least we're always uh, getting better. The scientific method allows us to get better. And there's definitely a, a refuge in that thinking. I think so. All righty. I will catch you next week. Thanks, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.